Our sermon title this morning is Dropping Our Nets. I think I've shared with many of you before that one of the ways I really love interacting with Scripture is by imagining myself in some of these stories of the Bible. I've done this since I was a youth, especially imagining myself in some of these gospel stories. And when I say imagine, I really don't imagine myself often as one of the main characters, but often I'm, I'm just, in the, just in the crowd following along, watching the scene unfold. And usually I do this around bedtime, close my eyes, and I'm in this half-dreamy, half-awake state as I imagine these stories. And I've had some really interesting, if not surprising, observations that happened, including one time when I was following Jesus. I had my son with me. I was, he was a toddler. I was carrying him on my hip. And all of a sudden, I realized I was wearing a polo shirt and khakis. And my son was wearing a Pokemon t-shirt. And the other surprising thing about it was nobody seemed to care. This gospel story this morning that we share of the first call of the first disciples is one how I wish somebody had had their iPhone there and they could have pulled out and hit record. I would love to have seen this. And this actually is one of those stories that's a little bit hard for me to insert myself into. And there's a reason for that. And it's one that I'm a little reluctant to admit, but I'm going to disclose it. I am not a fisherman. I don't know the first thing about fishing, and I probably never will. You could put a rod in my hand, and you could cast it out, and I guess technically that would be fishing, but that's about the best I can do. How many, show of hands, how many folks in here enjoy fishing or have enjoyed fishing? may not have a job uh, <laughs> after today. <laughs> well, I will tell you this. Even though I'm not a fisherman, I do go fishing once a year. I go with my very good friend, Alex. I take him on a 24-hour, 30-hour fishing trip where we just get away. My good friend, Alex, most of his adult life, he has spent in a very intense caregiving situation for his family, his wife and his two sons. They have had illnesses and disabilities that have been very challenging. His two sons have actually passed away, but he still remains a caregiver for his wife. So it's really just a chance for us to, to get away, for me to have a little time with him and give him a little bit of a break. And we get down there, and honestly, my main job is carrying these two big five-gallon buckets of his fishing stuff. It's, I guess tackle's the right word. Is that right? <laughs> Down to the beach, and we set them on the beach, and we set up our chairs, and, you know, it really is actually a wonderful day, and one of the things I love is that as soon as we get there, one of the th first things that Alex pulls out is his fishing net, his, his net to catch some bait. He's kind of old school, but Alex has been fishing since he was a child, so he knows what he's doing, and he can, he can throw that net in just a way where it's, it's going to land exactly where he wants it to, exactly when he wants it to, catching exactly what he needs to go fishing the rest of the day. And you know, I, I, I think it was not unlike the nets that Simon and Andrew 
And James and John were using that morning as they were preparing their nets and getting ready to go fishing. These men were seasoned fishermen. It's a little anachronistic to, to call them this, but they were commercial fishermen. They had been fishing probably all of their lives. This was the family business. They knew what they were doing. They knew the sea. And like all people who have spent time at the sea, I bet they had a great humility and respect for it. They knew what they were trying to catch. They knew where they wanted to cast their nets. They knew when they wanted to cast their nets. And it's interesting, the scholar Casey Hansen has noted, they were also living in a time where they had seen their profession dramatically change. Fishing had become a very regulated state enterprise controlled by the Roman Empire. No longer were they providing fish, this, uh, this sustenance food for the people of the area. It was primarily going to the elite. And when I'm honest, I, I think I would love more details about this story. And, and you're just not going to get them from the gospel writer Mark. Scholars have noted, and many of you know this, and it's Mark's style. It's just more of this kind of action-packed account of Jesus' ministry. He's more interested in, in Jesus' words than his deeds, his actions. It's a very fast-paced account of Jesus' ministry. The Greek word for immediately is used almost twice per chapter in Mark's account. He will say, Jesus did this, and then immediately he did this. And the gospel writer just doesn't use a lot of filler language in, in Mark. He just doesn't tell us any background info or what's happening, and it sets me on this journey of just asking so many questions about what it might have happened that day as Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. Had folks heard that Jesus was coming? Had the news of his baptism, which was right before in this account of Mark, kind of preceded him? Had they word, heard the word about him and this message that he was talking about, this message that he was preaching? Now, I'm not calling into account Mark's, Mark's account of what happened that day, but I just would love to know these things. I mean, did Jesus say anything to Simon and Andrew before he asked them to follow? Like, I don't know, catching anything? <laughs> and also, when Simon and Andrew heard Jesus' call to follow, was it just this moment where they looked at each other? Maybe it was just their eyes, or maybe they shared their thoughts. Yes, this is what we should be doing. We should be we should be following this man. I think about the father Zebedee in the boat and what his reaction was. Did he look at his sons and say, yes, this is what you should do? Or perhaps did he say, where are you going? I don't think we need to know all the answers to these questions to appreciate the power and mystery of Jesus' presence and call. This is God breaking into the lives of people in the most ordinary, unexpected times and places of their lives, just as ours, and that responding to God's call in our lives can take all kinds of different shapes and forms. Sometimes these calls unfold very slowly over years. 
That's been my experience. And other times, it's immediate, like Simon and Andrew and James and John and Mary. Here I am, Lord. Send me. One of my very favorite send me stories is that of a remarkable woman named Hazel Clawson. Her full name is Hazel Galeda Clawson. Hazel was born in Iowa, educated at Iowa State, taught home economics in the school system there for years, helped on the family farm, a woman of deep and great faith. In the 1970s, while she was in her 70s, she found herself a widow, retired, and struggling. She thought God had abandoned her. She felt like she no longer had a purpose in her life. And she tells a story about how one night she literally dropped to her knees by her bed and prayed that God would give her a purpose for her life. Show me what I need to do and I will do it. That very next Wednesday night, and this is a good reason to come to Wednesday night programming, by the way. That very next Wednesday night, there were two mission co-workers from a medical clinic and nursing school in the Yucatan Peninsula who had come to tell them about their ministry and gain some support for it. And Hazel was there. And she listened to the presentation, and folks at the end of it asked, well, what do you need? And they said, well, obviously, we'd like financial support and help. I said, but you know, we, we've got this other need. We have these nursing students, these women who come from all these even more remote areas to our school. And they come here not knowing anybody. They don't have the, the support and the things they need. And we need to take care of these young ladies as they get their training, getting ready to go back into the communities where they will serve. We need somebody that can help them, help them adjust to the nursing school, help them make their uniforms, somebody that needs how to, knows how to sew. We need somebody that knows about nutrition and meals, somebody that can fix their meals for them. We kind of need somebody just, just to be a house mother for these folks. A hand shot up in the air. It was Hazel. And she said, I'll do it. And they said, well, wait, 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 wait. Uh, do you speak Spanish? She said, no, but I can learn. Just a couple of months later, Hazel found herself in the town of Shookham Peach, where she would spend months, where she, over the next 25 years, into her 90s, she would go down for months at a time to support and teach and help the women of this nursing school, to help the people of that whole community. And using her gifts and talents, she transformed the school. She transformed the community. She was traveling there until she was in her 90s. My wife, Kathy, had the chance. She's a healthcare professional. She had a chance to go with her one time. And I love the story she tells about coming into the town on the bus and how as they got to the outskirts of the town, the people came and just surrounded the bus, nursing students, people from the community, because they knew that Mama Galeta was on that bus. And by this time, Hazel's mobility was very limited. She was blind. 
but she had heard that call, follow me, and she was determined to continue doing it. You know, I think Hazel's, Hazel's response to God's presence in her life, just like Simon and Andrew and James and John, and just like all of us, is a reminder of how we must always be open to those times where God is going to be breaking into our lives. They may ha happen in some place where God is already at work in our lives, but I think we must always be open to discerning how we can bring forth the very best of our gifts and talents, the very best of our lives, the very best of our faith to follow Christ into the world. I know for me and perhaps for you, the story of the fishermen, the story of Hazel is not just a call of us as individuals, but also a shared call of community. And I'd like us just to think for a minute of, of what it means to be fishers of people and understand that Simon and Andrew and James and John heard those words very differently than I heard them when I was growing up. Quite frankly, I heard them as a call to go out and just reel them in for Jesus. As a Christian century editor, Debbie Thomas has written, Jesus was not calling these four men, just as he doesn't call us, to evangelize in the abstract to ensnare others in our nets, but to call, calling us to play close attention, loving attention to the, to the people they would meet as they were following Jesus, to know the water. She writes, to live, to move, to speak, to fish in ways that are reciprocal, respectful, and mutually life-giving. I deeply, deeply believe that is the call that we share. And the question is, how do we live it out? And I would ask if there's still some nets that we need to drop. Nets, as commercial fishermen will tell you, are made and customized to be highly discriminating. They'll tell you it's, it's not just about what you can keep in the net, it's about what you want to keep out of that net. I think we have so much to celebrate as a church, especially as we look forward to the future, especially as we look forward to celebrating our 165th birthday this May. And as we look forward with great hope, we've always had, also had the chance to gather and discuss and discern and celebrate the many things we love about our church community and celebrate also some of the nets that have come down in our history. Like the net that at one time probably kept you out of this church because of the color of your skin. And the net that was often celebrated during our time together that kept folks from leadership and ministry and their call to ministry because of their gender. We as a church, I think, to our great credit, have dropped these and many other nets. At the same time, I think there are more that we need to wrestle with, such as completely and forever dropping the net that excludes you on the basis of who you love. We must always make a place at our table for people of all gender expressions and sexual orientation. That net 
has caused so much pain in our community, so much pain in the lives of people. And I hear that pain in the words of a hymn I read recently called Out of the Depths from the Chalice Hymnal. Words of the past remain, affecting all we do. Facing our lives, we need your love so much. Here in community, heal us by your touch. Hold us in your grace. Meet us with your care. The nets that remain in our church, the nets that remain in so many churches, I think are in bitter contrast to what I think is one of the most important themes of Scripture. The fundamental call in our life to fully be the people that God has called us to be. The people that God dreams for us to be. I want to tell you about a net. I saw an action one night. And it's something, quite frankly, that will continues to haunt me. And I hope it's something that will always haunt me. I was leading worship at my former church one night at our Saturday night worship service. At the time, at, at the back of the sanctuary, there, there were these beautiful glass doors. And as worship would begin there, just like here in our church, the ushers would close those doors as the service began. That night, as I was leading worship, in the back behind one of those doors, I could see the figure of a man. It was dark. I couldn't make out who it was. But he stood there on the outside looking in. At one point, I saw him put his hand up on the glass. The whole time I was thinking, okay, there's got to be a time when I can, not disrupting things, sneak to the back and invite him to come in. But I looked up one point, and he was gone. You know, there, there are a million different reasons he did not come in that night. I don't know what it was. But I can tell you this. Whatever time I got left on this planet, I'm going to be about dropping nets. I'm going to be make sure that no one ever feels so unworthy. No one feels like they won't be accepted when they come through these doors. The good news is, good news for me, and I think it's the good news for all of us, that this call that we hear in the Gospel of Mark this morning is actually a promise from God to us and not a promise from us to God. The Episcopal priest and author, Barbara Brown Taylor, has written about this passage in Mark, and she calls it the miracle on the beach. And she notes that even though these four men did drop their nets and immediately follow Jesus, they were not people of superhuman courage or prophetic knowledge. These are the same folks who are going to abandon Jesus. They're just as broken and fallible as we are. Taylor writes, 
this is not a story about us. This is a story about God and God's ability not only to call us, but to create us as a people who are able to follow, able to follow, because we cannot take our eyes off the one who calls us. It was a miracle that day on the beach. I'm telling you, it's just as much a miracle now. We are called to live out that miracle, to drop our nets and to follow, to drop any nets we may be holding up, ones that might be keeping us in and others out. Friends, we are miracles. We are this church community that binds us together in the love of Christ is a miracle. Let's live that way, responding to be the call to be God's people to each other and to all. Amen.